0: talk with you after chapel. Sojourner's director of mobilizing, Ms. Harper, was the founding executive rec- director of New York Faith and Justice, an organization at the hub of a new ecumenical movement to end poverty in New York City. In that capacity, she helped establish Faith Leaders for Environmental Justice, a citywide collaborative effort of faith leaders committed to leveraging the power of their constituencies and their moral authority in partnership with communities bearing the weight of environmental justice injustice she also organized faith leaders to speak out for immigration reform and organized the South Bronx Conversations for Change a dialogue to change project between police and the community her writing has been featured in the National Civic Review God's Politics blog the Huffington Post Urban Faith PRISM, and Slant 33, where she has written extensively on tax reform, comprehensive immigration reform, health care reform, poverty, racial justice, and transformational civic engagement. Having earned her master's degree in human rights from Columbia University in New York City, Ms. Harper's forthcoming book, Left, Right, and Christ, Evangelical Faith and Politics, was co-written with D.C. Ennis, an evangelical Republican who was also a Tea Partier, Harper and Ennis explore their philosophies of government and business, as well as six major issues the next generations of evangelicals must wrestle with to be faithful witnesses in the public square. Ms. Harper co-founded and co-directed the Envision 2008, the Gospel, Politics, and Future Conference on the campus of Princeton University, and co-chaired the Envision 2011 Caring for the Community of Creation, Environmental Justice, Climate Change, and Prophetic Witness Symposium in New York City of June 2011. She was the recipient of Sojourner's Inaugural Organizers Award and the Harlem Sisters of Wisdom Award. She was celebrated on Rick Warren's website. PurposeDriven.com as one of the site's inaugural seven Take Action Heroes and was recently named number five of the top 13 women to watch in 2012 by the Center for American Progress. Lisa is a member of Metro Hope Church in New York City, an evangelical covenant church, and she shared with me last night that for several years she attended L.A. First Church of the Nazarene under the pastoral leadership of Dr. Ron Benefield. Will you please give a warm welcome to Ms. Lisa Sharon Harper.
1: Thank you. Oh, it's so great to be here. I've been hearing about Eastern Nazarene College for I don't know how many years. Actually, it probably dates back to the time when I was going, when I was at uh, LA First Church of the Nazarene. You are dear to my heart. A lot of people that I know have gone here, have graduated from here. Uh, Dr. Fletcher Tink sent his greetings this morning. He contacted me on Facebook last night to let me know, hey, that's my alma mater. Um, And so I'm just really excited to be with you today. Put this down here. So, I am also excited because I get to talk to you about one of the things that I have the most passion about in my entire life. And anybody who knows me knows I'm passionate about a lot of things, so that's saying a lot about environmental justice. In fact, one of the areas that I kind of cut my teeth in organizing on and mobilizing people on was this issue of environment, the environment's creation, and organizing people around people of faith to take action. Now, why would this matter to me? It matters to me because I love the Bible. I love Scripture. I am moved and motivated to take action because of my faith. So I want us to go into the Scripture today. Who here has their Bibles? If you don't have your Bible, um, then I would ask you to, you know, maybe bring it up on your app or, or maybe on your, on your laptop if you have your laptop. But I'm gonna, we're going to do a little bit of reading today into Scripture And we're going to especially focus on Genesis 1, because Genesis 1 is that place... I mean, actually, not just Genesis 1, but all of Genesis, I like to think, it's kind of like that that, uh, motto, that saying that we hear, everything I ever needed to know, I learned in kindergarten. Well, that's like Genesis. Everything we really need to know about our faith, our walk, it's actually found right there in Genesis. So, get your Bibles out, and turn with me to Genesis 1. Now, um, there's like three main words in Genesis 1 that I want to bring out. And then we're also going to take a look at Genesis 2 as well. In Genesis 1, we're going to flip to the back end of Genesis 1. At the, at the last day of creation, the sixth day, the seventh day, God rests. But on this last day of like, major activity, God creates humanity. And then at the end of the time when God creates humanity, he looks around and she says, he, she, because we're both made in God's image, Right? Okay, I'm being real here. I love the text, right? So God says, this is very good. Meho tobe. This is very good. Now that word, very good, the first word is mehod. That word mehod actually means forceful, powerfully, forcefully good. And then that word good is not just talking about the thing itself. And this is so key. The Greeks, when the Greeks thought of perfection or goodness, they thought about it existing inside the thing. But the Hebrews did not conceive of goodness in that way. The Hebrews understood perfection, if that's, what the word, if that's the only word you have, to exist between things. So that word good or tobe actually is referring to the ties between all of the created things that God had just created over those last six days. So what God is saying is that the relationship between humanity and God was forcefully good. The relationship between women and men was forcefully good. The relationship between us and the rest of creation was forcefully good. The relationship between us and the systems that govern us was forcefully good. And the relationship between us and life itself was forcefully good. There was no such thing as death. And so we have here at the end of the sixth day a declaration that what goodness looks like, very goodness looks like, when God says, this is very good, this is forcefully good, it looks like the wellness of all relationships in creation. Now, there's two other words that I want to bring out in the text. You could flip back a little bit in the, in the text. It's the same day, but it's the top of the sixth day. And we have when God actually creates humanity... God says in verse 26, God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created humankind in his image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. Now let's go here. We got, we've got a couple of words that I want to break down for us. The first is the word image. That word image in the Hebrew is the word selem. Now, that word selem means image bearer. Image bearer. It's actually the Hebrew form of the Greek word icon. The Greek word icon, get this, is the word that they would use to describe the picture of Caesar's face that he would put on a coin, on coins, and also, you know, his statue, his image, he would put at the entrance to cities because his icon was a marker of where he ruled. Just recently, a couple of years ago, I went to Croatia, and I was there, and I got a chance to go to this wonderful museum. And in this museum, they had a, a, a really just a small display, but I spent most of my time there where they had all the coins. They had a bunch of coins from the Roman era. And on these coins were the faces of the Caesars. I have seen the face of Nero. I know what Nero looks like. Because I saw Nero's icon on that coin. Now, imagine you were created With the Selem, the icon, the Selem of God imprinted on you. Do you ever think of yourself that way? That you were created in order to be a marker of where God rules? God told us to multiply and fill the earth. Why would God do that? So that we all might know, and all creation might know, this is where God rules. Everywhere. And then there's this third word that I want to bring out for us. It's the word dominion. Now, this word has been really, really, really misused over the years. And I think misunderstood. Sometimes people use it to justify domination. Or the complete lack of regard for the rest of creation. We have dominion. We are the kings. We get to do whatever we want with, with the rest of everything else, right? That's the way that kings have operated in the past. So, of course, that's what God meant. But not necessarily so. You see, God, God's meaning of the word dominion is not predicated on how humanity has used it. God's meaning of the word dominion is predicated on how God intended it to be used, We might have just messed it up. So let's take a look at that word dominion. The word dominion in the text here is rada. In the cultural context, in this agrarian place, in this agrarian context of the people who would have been the original readers and hearers of Genesis one, the word rada would mean steward. It would mean to subjugate, but not unto domination or oblivion. It would be to subjugate um, unto to control to make sure that it is protected or controlled a better word even than rada you find in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2 you have the words till and keep. You know when when Adam the first human was put in the garden in order to say in order to till and keep it. Well get this that word till and keep I was really blown away when I saw this. The word till is abad and that means to work or to serve. And actually, implicitly, it means to serve as a bond servant, as in as a slave. So we were put in the garden, now jumping to chapter two, to serve creation, even as a bond servant, to serve the needs of creation. And then that word to keep, the word to keep is the word shamar. And that word shamar means to protect. To guard. So those three words, dominion, shamar, abad, they give us a real clearer picture of what God means when God says to exercise dominion. It means to protect the wellness of all the relationships that God had already established. It means to make sure that this these relationships are guarded and preserved. And it also means to serve creation, to make sure that it is well, it is provided for. And that it is providing its own proper function in relationship to us. So those are three words I want to bring out. Now, there's another piece here that I'd actually like to point out as well. When we have this thing about dominion and serving creation, here's the thing I really, something that just jumped out at me when I was considering this. I am the second oldest of six siblings. It was actually a blended family, so my mom and dad weren't really that busy, but you know, well, they were busy making, you know, short, getting, making, uh, taking care of us. But every once in a while, they would go on trips or whatever, or they worked, you know, both of them had full-time jobs. And so the kids really kind of, in a lot of ways, we kind of ran the house, right? So what happened was the oldest siblings, myself and my older brother, would often be put in charge of the younger siblings. Anybody else here have that, have that experience? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay, right. Like, you know what it was like. Sometimes it was a pain (laughs) because they didn't listen or whatever, you know. But then other times it was a joy. But I have to say those were like the lesser times. It was not, (laughs) that was, that was not, that was not my normal experience. Um, But here's the thing. Imagine this. We were the last born of creation. Humanity came on the sixth day. Before us came vegetation. Before us came the animals. Before us came the seas and the fishes, and yet we were put in charge of our elder siblings. Would mom and dad ever do that? Put the youngest in charge of the eldest? Not usually, and they might actually be brought up on charges if they did. (laughs) You know, taken to Difus or something like that. But not God. You see, God knew what God was doing, and God is like that. God takes the least often and puts the person in the back to the front, makes the little one the one that we all have to follow, the one that is actually the example for all. And it's a weird thing that God does this, but God does do it. God gives us the honor, the honor of being the protector of all of the rest of creation, our elder siblings in creation. And then we come to this place, this place in Genesis 2, where God puts in the middle of the garden a picture of creation, two trees. One of them is the tree of life, and the other one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And with the tree of life, we can eat of that tree any day of the week and just gain another thousand years, basically, right? It's, it's we are going to live forever because we have access to the tree of life. That's why there was no death here. But then with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God gives us a warning. And it sounds like this. God says, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So there's a command a lot of people look at that tree and they kind of think of it as like this magical tree. You eat of it and all of a sudden it's almost like, ooh, ooh, ooh. you know, everybody goes, I'm melting, you know, I'm dying, I'm going to die. That's not. I don't think that's what it was. I don't think that's what it was all about. I think that what that was about was that this is the only place in all of creation up to this point where there is a command attached. Right now we are in paradise. They have everything they need everything. There was not a need that they had except with that tree. With the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they had to come across it every single day. It was in the middle, not on the edges, but on the, in the middle of the garden. And so at that place, when they were going to go run with the elk that day, they would have to pass that tree and make a decision about whether or not they were going to follow God's way to wholeness and peace, whether or not they were going to trust God's words, whether or not they were going to choose God's kind of peace or their own kind of peace. And one day they made a fateful choice, and that choice led them to the fall. And this is what I want to bring out here. We have the saddest moment in all of human creation— And the whole whole human story up to this point, and I think the whole time, comes in Genesis 1, Genesis 3, 1, when the serpent sidles up to the woman and lies to her. And isn't it interesting, again, that all of this is in relationship to creation, that there's a tree of life, there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, how we interact with the rest of creation actually gives us whether or not we will live or die. And here now we have an animal, the serpent, who sidles up and lies. Says, you know, the old man doesn't know what he's talking about. The old man ah, he's really out for his own good. He just thinks you're going to get all the knowledge he has, and he doesn't want you to have that. And so the woman sees that the tree is good, pleasing to the eye, good for knowledge, and she takes it. And her husband, who was standing right there with her, took it too. And what we see from that point on is we see the breaking of all of the relationships that God had declared, meho just a chapter and a verse before that. They all fell down. If you ever wondered why it's called the fall, that's why. The first thing to go is our relationship with self. The second thing to go, because shame enters the world. We run and we hide. We hide behind fig leaves. The second thing to enter the world is the break between us and god god comes down into the garden hey where are you god cries we ran and hid from him and said oh i'm sorry you know we we, hid it. we didn't know what you were up to first time in a story of creation the story of humanity that we don't trust god god's intentions toward us and then we see the relationship between us and the rest of creation is broken let me read for us here. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, Many people, I'm sure you've probably heard sermons about this, where they talk about this being a foreshadowing of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he strikes the head of the serpent, you know? And I'm sure that that's it. But in a more concrete way, this is also, in the story, the very first time we ever see an animal striking at a human being. We never see that before this, before this moment. And then, flip forward a little bit, and you have, And to the man, he says, Blessed, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so, in one breath, we have curses laid. And they are not on the people. The curses are put on creation. Who carries the curse of the fall? Not the woman. Not the man. Creation. The animals and the ground. And in fact, we see in Romans, Romans eight, eighteen says that, The earth moans, creation groans, waiting for the revealing of the children of God. In other words, waiting for redemption, waiting for restoration from this moment when the curse was laid. So in a very practical sense, this is the first time in the creation story that we see clearly that our sin affects the earth and the way things work. Because up to this point, we have only seen creation work to bless. Things were in right relationship with each other. The relationships were meho tobe, But because of the fall, because we reached for our kind of peace at the expense of everyone else's peace, because we did that, the relationships that God had declared Mehotob, just a chapter and a verse ago, all fell down. They were shattered. And what they call shalom, the wellness of these relationships, the peace between all, it was ransacked. Shalom was ransacked. So the relationship between us and the rest of creation, which is really what I want to rest on for the rest of our time here, there's an interesting relationship here. The creation bears witness to the condition of our relationship with God. I took a journey not too long ago that was called The Pilgrimage for Reconciliation. And on this pilgrimage, we retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the African experience in America from slavery to civil rights. It was through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And... When we were on the trail, the Cherokee Trail of Tears, we came to this park called the Trail of Tears Park in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Now, this park actually bears significance in my own family's story. My own family walked the Trail of Tears, African-Americans and Cherokees and Chickasaws. And we actually believed that they, ex- they escaped the Trail of Tears Park, that very park, because just a few years later, they were found on the census just 50 miles due northwest of that park, and they were hiding out. But as I walked that earth, I was really blown away because the earth was cracked. Now, we had driven through Kentucky that whole summer, not that whole summer, but over the course of that week, and there was lush green everywhere. It was was really quite stunning. We came to that park... And it was gray, like a grayish brown, and it was cracked. And even the trees seemed to weep here. The, the leaves just kind of fell like this. I took pictures because it was stunning. There were cracks that, like with big holes gaping in the earth. And I remember thinking to myself, creation is bearing witness to what happened here. The relationship between the earth and humans and the way things work is affected at the core. It wasn't supposed to work this way. We were supposed to be able to go to the trees and say, Hey, I want a mango. And he goes, Hey, I made you a mango today. Great. Or, you know, we're supposed to be able to walk through the garden and get anything we wanted. But it doesn't work. Now we have to beat the earth. And death enters the world on the same t- at the same time, on the same day. That our relationship with creation is destroyed. Now, the theologian Paul Tillich says that sin, the nature of sin, is separation. And we often think of sin as the thing that separates us from God. I know I was taught that. And I was taught that sin is imperfection, right? It's not being perfect in and of myself. That is a Greek understanding of sin. Not a Hebraic understanding of sin. In fact, I was even taught back in the Roman times—you know, in the Greek in the Greek times—the archers would say "sin," and you know, they would they would they would you know shoot their arrow, and it would be the distance between the arrow and the bullseye would be called the sin. But what if sin is actually whatever breaks those relationships that God declared very good, meho tobe forcefully good in that sixth day of creation. The implications are huge here. So then how we interact with creation and how we interact with God will be reflected in both directions. Proverbs thirteen twenty three says, the fields of the poor may yield much food but it is swept away through injustice. Sin and creation and people are affected. Now today, the sin-stained mantra that ushered in our current crises, crisis of droughts in our nation, crisis of food shortages around the world, crises of heat islands in urban centers, crises of water that you can literally set on fire because of fracking, crises of exponential growth in the number of cases, the rate of cancer among us and other ailments. We are at a crisis moment. And my friends, what I'm saying is, theologically, we can look at the scripture and we can know that the reason why this is happening is because creation is bearing witness to our broken relationship with God. Take a look. Let's just consider war. Think about Darfur. Think about the genocide in Darfur. Really big news about five, five, six years ago, right? How did that start? A lot of people called it an ethnic conflict between the Arabs and the blacks. It didn't start that way. Darfur began as a conflict over water between the herdsmen and the farmers, And Gaddafi, who is no longer with us, he turned it into an ethnic conflict by naming those blacks as part of the problem and rallying the Arabs against the blacks. But originally, it was a resource conflict. I told you I spent time in Croatia. We were investigating the Croatian and Balkan wars. How did that begin? People called it an ethnic conflict, but it wasn't. It didn't start that way. It started as a conflict over resources. Because when Croatia and Bosnia pulled out of Yugoslavia, Serbia knew that the resources that they depended on were in Bosnia and Croatia. So they were fighting in order to maintain resources. But they said it was an ethnic conflict in order to rally people to kill each other. American use of corn for fuel to produce ethanol has driven up the price of food around the world and caused riots, caused full-on riots in whole countries because they don't have food. And let's consider the issue of justice and the environment here in America. Here in America, actually just last week at a briefing on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., we learned a few things. One, climate change is eroding Native Americans' way of life. There's no longer enough fish for substance living, subsistence living. And when you have Native people who depend on the land, this is not just, oh, I like to go fishing. This is, can we eat this year? Drought, wildfires, Other ailments like that are disproportionately affecting native tribal lands. Coal ash. From the coal companies who normally are actually most most, uh, positioned near uh, tribal lands, coal ash is causing rising incidence of cancer, lung disease, heart disease, and other ailments. And environmental inequality, we learned affects people of color more, more often. Pollution can't be mitigated, and they have limited access to health care. And people of color, get this, are 150 to 200% more likely to be affected by heat islands and have heat stroke because they live in urban centers where the the tops of buildings are black-topped, and so, and they also have huge amounts of stone, so they bring in the heat and they trap the heat. And when they trap the heat, the particles, the, the particles of pollution are trapped in the air and you can't do anything with them. So people have a heightened incidence of asthma, heart disease, cancer. And get this, 68% of African Americans, imagine this, almost 70%, only 30% don't have this. 68% live within 30 miles of a coal plant. Environmental justice, when we talk about environmental justice, what it means is that people are not loving the environment. And more than that, systemically, through law, And through policies, they are pushing the toxins from that lack of care for the world. The toxins into poor neighborhoods and poor communities. Usually people of color like Native Americans, Latinos, and African Americans. The earth is bearing witness to our lack of relationship with God. And creation is groaning, waiting, for the children of God to be revealed. So this is how things are left in Genesis 3. But it is not the end of the story. When we look further in the text all the way through Genesis, all the way through Exodus, Deuteronomy, Samuel, First Chronicles, Job, Isaiah, Psalms, Ezekiel, Micah, Matthew, Luke, Romans, Philippians, Hebrews, and Revelation, we actually see that God is working out a redemption plan. And that's part of the reason why Jesus came. We see in Psalm 85, the people cry out, Shalom, Shalom, give us Shalom, give us peace. They're looking at that first time in the garden when God said it was all good. It's all very good. And they said, give it back, God, give it back. And God says, I am going to give it back. And this is what it's going to look like. Justice and peace are going to kiss. Truth, truth is going to spring up from the ground. Righteousness is going to shine from the sky. Justice is going to shine from the sky. That's what the word means. It means justice. And so God promises, yes, it's going to happen. And then Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, Jesus doesn't just get on the cross. Yes, Jesus gets on the cross. But Jesus walked on the earth for 33 years before he got on the cross. And he actually said a lot of good stuff. And he actually showed us in those, especially those last three years, what it looks like to be a shalom restorer. Jesus looked at the wind and said, Ereine, which means shalom in the Greek. Ereine, and the wind was still. Jesus went to a tree, a fig tree, that came up and had its flowers bear, say that basically it lied. It said, oh, you know, because it had the flowers, it said basically that it's supposed to have a bunch of fruit there. It witnessed to the world that there was fruit on that tree, but he came up to the tree and there was no fruit, and so he cursed it. He said, "Uh uh-uh, not right relationship. And then he went into the temple and he saw that the temple had the appearance of fruit, but there was no fruit inside. And so he overturned the tables. Jesus was about restoring right relationship with all things. Even that prayer that we prayed earlier. Our father who art in heaven, not Caesar who called himself the father of his people, Hallowed be your name, not Caesar, who said his name was above all names. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Not Caesar's will, not Caesar's kingdom, your kingdom, your will. Give us this day our daily bread. What would that look like for God to give us our daily bread? It looks like the restoration of the wellness of creation so that creation might actually spring up and give life and food and sustenance so that we would no longer have to beat the earth. Not Caesar, who used to toss out bread to the people as a benevolent symbol, as a symbol of his benevolence. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Where have you trespassed today? Where have you trespassed against creation? How have how has our apathy and our inaction, our lack of love? Because love is ultimately the thing that bound all of those powerfully good relationships. How is our lack of love for our elder sibling of create the rest of creation caused a lot of the damage that we see in the world today. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from doing evil. For yours is the kingdom. And let me ask you this, where is the kingdom of God? Where does it exist? It exists wherever there are those who choose God's way to peace. Wherever there are those who trust God's way to peace. And that includes between the relationship between us and the rest of creation. What would God's way to peace look like? Let me give us a few things. One, it would mean living simply as individuals and as a nation we see that example from Moses in the manna. God rained down manna, and God said, Take only what you need. I think we need to work on a theology of enough. We have a, a deep sin, a deep lie that's been told to our culture. You consume, therefore you are. That is not the truth. The truth is, we are because God is. And we are well and good. Because God has made us in God's image, and nothing can take that away from us. Second, just systems that feed the hungry and provide water for the thirsty. We can work towards that. Matthew 25 tells us these are, these are two groups, people who are hungry and people who are thirsty, that, that Jesus cares about deeply, and we need to be focused on looking at legislation, looking at policies in our own community, our own city, and even asking the question of even within the Nazarene church, what churches in what regions are actually suffering right now because they are close to a coal plant or they are experiencing fracking. And so those church members and those church pews have to worry about whether or not their water can be lit on fire. We would become a People of generosity. Jesus fed 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes. We, we don't need to be hoarding our resources. What we can do is we can exercise the generosity that Jesus does and and expect God to multiply our resources. And we can exercise dependence on God. In Luke 11 God does say, give us this day our daily bread. And humility and repentance, Second Chronicles 7.14. If you humble yourselves and repent, I will heal the land, God says. So the question is, what would repentance look like for us? And I think we have to answer that in our own souls. We have to answer that with our own selves. It starts at home. Are we recycling? That's a big question. Are we trying to live in a way that doesn't expend more energy or use more energy than we have? And then finally, we need to be praying for a world where resources are allotted for all, not just for some, at the expense of the many. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for this word. We ask you, holy God, to take this word now and take the seeds, and I pray that you would water it over time. I pray that you would raise up from these seeds shoots that would become trees, that would become trees of life, trees of righteousness, oaks of righteousness, as Isaiah 61 says, within the Nazarene Church and throughout our world. We ask you, God, heal creation. Heal our relationship with you. Heal our relationship with each other. And God, I pray that in the same way that that creation is a witness to our broken relationship with you, that it might become a witness to our restored relationship with you. And that through that, Lord, our relationship with our brothers and sisters, particularly those who are the least of these, might also be restored. We pray these things by your power and in your name. Amen. And if you would, in, your la- in these last moments, if you would like to stay in contact with me, if you want to stay connected, if you could put that last slide on the screen, I'd like to ask you to take out your cell phones, and I'd like to ask you to text the word FAITH to eight seven seven eight seven seven. And what that will do is it'll put you in contact with me. You'll receive my newsletter, which comes out every every month, once a month. And also, you'll get to learn what it looks like to do justice on a daily basis. Lots of other different issues, too. So thank you so much for your time today. Please do text. You're dismissed.